Welcome to Asante Church. I've also seen some new faces here for the first time. Welcome. So glad that you guys are here. It's exciting to worship together. We are going to dive into God's Word now, continue to worship through the study of the Bible. We are going to be in Galatians 2 today. Uh, we're going to cover the whole chapter. And uh, I cut about 10 verses out from the sermon this morning because I didn't think going an hour and 46 minutes was going to be appropriate. So we've got some football games to get to this afternoon. I'm not trying to set up any idols in your life if that's what you tend to worship more than anything else. But I do think, you know, eating lunch is good as well. I think, uh, I think we live in a very performance-based society. Everything about our lives is performance-based. Um, if you're under, let's just go 40. I'm going to say, I'm going to start a lyric, okay? Hey, I'm not counting you out, okay? If you know the lyric, finish the lyric, okay? I'm going to say something, and then you finish it for me to help me prove this point. Harder, better. All right, anybody over 40 get that reference? Jesus, please forgive me. <laughs> I have sinned against our chronologically advanced part of the congregation <laughs> this morning. <laughs> I love you, Joe. I only bring up that lyric to say that was a popular song, and I didn't know Fat Boy Slim had anything to do with that. I was thinking Daft Punk, which shows, uh, I'm sorry. But everything in our lives is performance-based. Harder, better, faster, stronger is the American way of life. I would say it's even quicker, wittier, less sarcastic, but faster thinking, smarter, maybe not stronger. I think about standardized testing. I kind of grew up in the generation where standardized testing got introduced. And so um, for a man of my intellectual capacity, uh, the cards were really stacked against me there, okay? You know, usually you can just move kids on to the next grade. Now you have to pass a state standardized test. That was kind of hard for me, but in these tests, teachers kind of stop teaching the things that you need to learn. They start teaching these things that have to be taught in order for you to pass this certain test. Now, growing up in Texas, we had a different standardized test every two to five years, and so the things that you absolutely had to learn that so much time in the classroom got focused on was constantly changing. You want to pass the test, what do you have to do? You have to study. You have to pay attention in class, all performance-based, if you want to get the acceptance of the teacher, of the school, of the state to move on to the next grade. You have to pass the test. The same is true for sports. I had a goal in high school. I wanted to be on the varsity football team before I was a junior in high school. That's, you know, junior, unless you're like the worst football player ever, um, then you end up on varsity as a junior, hopefully by the time you're a senior. I set this goal for myself, and I said, you know what? I want to be the starting varsity defensive end before I get into my 11th grade year of school. And so what did I do? I worked out. I worked out so hard. I worked out every chance I could work out. I tried to perform in practice. I tried to be a varsity capacity defensive end. I went home, and mom would throw a family-sized thing of spaghetti noodles on the stove and just a stick or two of butter so I could gain weight, so I could get big enough, strong enough, fast enough so that I could be on varsity. Work harder, get the position. That's how it works. You work harder. You do more, 
you will be accepted for this position. Now, we didn't win a lot of football games in high school, so a lot of people just came to watch the band. And so, <laughs> that wasn't my fault. I wasn't on varsity. <laughs> but when I did get on varsity, we tied the school's record for the most losingest season <laughs> in the school's history. I was a starter at that point. Sorry, coach. <laughs> but the same was true for the athletes on the field and then the musical athletes that were on the field during halftime. These people would put hour after hour into honing their craft, learning their instruments so that they could get out on the field and they could be a part of the halftime show so that we could then follow that up with another tragic loss. <laughs> you practice, you make second chair. You practice harder, you make first chair. Now, because we were so bad, really, just at everything in athletics, because we were a small school that went into a big district, um, I was an artist, and I thought, you know what? The team cannot lose for me in art, so if I can just create, then maybe, maybe I can have some victory in my high school career. And so, fr freshman year, I knew at the end of the year we had a regional show, and if you won regionals, you could go on to state, and if you won state, then you could get a fat scholarship to any art school of your choice, and at this time in life, that is my dream. I want to be an artist. And if I can't just be an artist, then maybe I'll be an artist slash athlete and just confuse a whole lot of people. Had a lot of coaches ask me really weird questions around that. So I practiced, I painted, I drew, and I was horrible at drawing, and so I just kept painting, and I painted, and I painted, and my portfolio got stronger and stronger until finally regionals was here. And I presented my piece of art, and I told them the story behind it. In freshman year, I went on to state, and I went to state, and I explained it to them too, and and I won state. That was awesome. Our school hadn't won state ever. <laughs> and really like anything. And now the weird art kid that plays football too, he's, he's doing stuff. But that kind of sets a standard. If you win state as your freshman, then that means sophomore, junior, senior year, you have to win state again. And so I built up this pressure. I put this burden on my shoulders that if I just continue to work harder, I'll continue to win. And that kind of sinks into different stages, different places of my life, even today. Sophomore year, didn't win state. Won regionals. Junior year, went all the way to state. Lost. Senior year, didn't even make it past regionals. I just got worse and worse at art. <laughs> I mean, there's really, there's no way around that. But I think today, we take this performance-based mindset. And it kind of seeps into other areas of our lives as well. If I just perform enough at work, then I can get the raise. If I just work hard enough, then I can get more time off or I can win the acceptance, the approval of my boss, of my coworkers around me. And that's okay. I'm not saying that we all need to be snowflakes in here. I'm not saying that we all need to stop working hard to earn things. That's an amazing part about America is that if you work hard, if you have a dream and you go after it, chances are, if you don't stop, you could probably achieve it. But the issue is when that sinks in and that seeps in to our spiritual lives, when we start to think that our salvation is based off of our performance and not off the performance of Jesus. And so this morning, as we dive into Galatians chapter 2, I want us to see three different pictures. Paul is going to frame this in two different problems this problem of legalism, which is where we try to earn God's favor through these right things that we do. 
And then he's going to frame this other picture, and that's of hypocrisy. And then we're going to see that there's only one solution to each of these things, and that is through faith. So this morning, let's dive into this picture of legalism. We are in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have it, it'll be up on the screen. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. We see that Paul is accepted by the apostles. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. This is 14 years after his conversion. He already went to Jerusalem three years after that. So on the 14th year of his, after his conversion, back in Jerusalem with Barnabas, appear in the faith and taking along uh, Titus, who was his disciple, somebody who he took under his wing. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, these being the apostles. He set before these different churches in Jerusalem, these different uh, Jewish and Gentile believers. But what he's talking about here is he sits before the apostles, the people that followed Jesus in his life. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. Now, this seems a little bit late. As we learned last week, Paul, after three years, goes to Jerusalem. This gospel that was handed to him directly from Jesus on the road to Damascus is confirmed. And then once again, as he goes before more apostles, not just Peter, not just James, this gospel is approved. He had not been spinning his tires. He had not been running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Circumcision, really awkward word. We're going to be saying a lot today, okay? Let's just get it on the table. Let's air it out. Hey, it's not going to be awkward anymore. Yes, it will, every single time. <laughs> Titus was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom, that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Basically, all that means is the uncircumcised being the Gentiles, the circumcised being the Jews, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, Cephas being Peter, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. So as we read the Bible, as we dive into this, we have to ask ourselves, what is the big issue here? What is taking place? What is Paul trying to get at? And there's a whole lot more in these 10 verses than we will cover right now. And so if you turned in your Connect card, if we have your email in the system, I'm going to basically email you a sermon in the middle of this week that's going to explain the rest of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, but right now I want us to focus on verses 3 through 5, and that is on legalism. So what is legalism? What is the legalism that we are seeing here in these Jewish Christians? No, in these, yeah, Jewish Christians, these Judaizers. We see that they have a right behavior 
but they have a wrong belief. In verse 3, we see that Titus does not have to be circumcised. You see these false brothers that had snuck into the church to spy out the freedom that was within Jesus under this new covenant. These guys were fakers. These guys were playing the part so that they could put these Jewish and Gentile Christians back under the law, the law that Jesus had fulfilled. They were saying that in order to be saved, that you have to follow the law and the prophets, the very thing that Jesus came and fulfilled. He, he can read it better than I can. <laughs> we'll just start pressing play from now on. Can you tell me the number one thing? <laughs> 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 we should just pray out right now. That was good. <laughs> Burn. All right. <laughs> so back to these Judaizers. <laughs> these Judaizers were saying that in order to be saved, goodness gracious, that was so good, <laughs> that somebody had to be under the law. And to be under the law meant that you had to be circumcised because that was part of the deal. On top of being under the law, you also had to believe in Jesus, believe and put your faith in him that he died on the cross for your sins, that he could save you from your sin, that he could put you in right relationship with God the Father. But they don't let that fly. And when they don't let that fly, it validates the gospel of grace over anything that is works-based. You see that there's nothing that we can do as Christians, that can save us. It's not based on our performance. We cannot earn God's acceptance. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are. We can't say that Jesus' death on the cross was enough and then turn around and say, but I need to be a good enough person to earn my salvation. That's exactly what these Judaizers were trying to do. And Paul doesn't budge because Paul, having received the gospel from Jesus, knew exactly what was true. Paul knew exactly what the gospel was in its purest form. There's a quote that we had to do some research on who to cite for this quote this week, but that quote goes, maybe you've heard it. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for what? Everything. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for everything. Now, the first time that's ever quoted and cited is from an old newspaper that a Methodist pastor wrote in like the 1800s. And I'm talking about like, that had to be a good sermon that morning. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Paul knows exactly what he is standing for. And that is to protect the purity of the gospel, that nothing will be added to it. If Paul hadn't taken that stand, who knows what the gospel would look like today. As churches, as believers, we need to take a stand for the gospel today to make sure that it remains pure, to make sure that our moralism doesn't seep back into it, to make sure our nationalism doesn't seep back into it. You see, these Judaizers, they had the right behavior. They wanted good things. God's law is still good. Jesus fulfilled it. It wasn't applicable to these new Jewish and Gentile Christians, but they wanted to put that back on their shoulders 
The moral of the law is still true. The moral of the law is still something that we follow. It was still good. But there was a wrong belief. This expectation that the law would save you. And what Paul is trying to communicate to them is that only Jesus can save you. And we see that over and over and over today. Because legalism is working in our power with our rules to win God's acceptance. And quite frankly, in Jesus, our acceptance has already been won. So let's live in that. These Judaizers, they were legalistic, but church family, I, I need to get something out on the table. We are also legalistic. And don't think that I stand up here and I point a finger at you, because what I learned from, I think it was Barney and friends back in the day, is when I point a finger at you, I have three pointing back at me. And if I'm saying that you are legalistic, I am certainly much more legalistic than you. This is something that I have struggled with over and over and over in my walk with Jesus, especially coming from backgrounds that are performance-based. So how can we as a church be legalistic? Where do our right behaviors mix with our wrong beliefs and our wrong beliefs take over? Let's just look at our time with Jesus. Let's look at our quiet time. Let's look at our Bible study. Do we set this up at the beginning, at the end, throughout our day so that we could earn God's favor? Do we set this up so that we can earn God's love, so that we can be more accepted? What about our church attendance? Do we think that God's not going to love us if we don't show up one Sunday? If you show up one Sunday and you're scheduled to serve somewhere, I don't know what God, I'm just playing. <laughs> We're not going to change that. That's Judy Iserland right there, okay? What about our giving? Do we think that God loves us more or less based off of how much we give? It's not the case. How about how much we help others? How about what we do outside of these walls when we leave this church? Do we think that God loves us more for those things? No, God loves us so much he gave his son to die for us, and that is not going to change. We cannot win God's acceptance anymore. These are all great things. These are all right behaviors, but they will not help you earn God's love. No, because God loves us, we do these things. We do these things not just out of obedience because we have a heart for God and we want to spend time with Him because we have already been loved, not so that we can be loved. Then we see our second picture, and this is a picture of hypocrisy. And this is quite the showdown between two apostles of Jesus. Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14, we see that Paul opposes Peter. But when Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Basically, fearing these Jewish Christians these Judaizers that had snuck their way in. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What's the big issue here? We have to ask that question Again, the big issue here is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is the wrong behavior mixed with the right belief. Paul finds, Paul finds Peter at fault. 
and Paul addresses Peter. Whew! That's a tongue twister right there. In verse 12, we see that Peter is eating with these Gentile Christians. And that is a big deal for Peter, especially when you know Peter's past. You see, under the law, Peter, before he came to know Jesus and follow Jesus and became a disciple and an apostle, we see that Peter is a Jewish man. Jewish people were not supposed to eat with Gentile people because it made them unclean. They had strict dietary laws. This is ingrained in who Peter is. Peter is now having to fight against his old ways of life. But as soon as these Jewish Christians come around and they see Peter's eating with these Gentile Christians, Peter gets up just like you see in that movie Mean Girls and he goes to the other side of the cafeteria and he sits with a different set of more popular people. Why does he do that? Because of this thing called table fellowship. When a Jewish person who was under the law would eat with someone, then they had table fellowship. This meant that they had acceptance of this person. They had approval of this person. It wasn't just grabbing a bite to eat. This was you co-signing on this person's life, saying, I accept everything here. Now, Peter, unhypocritically, should have stayed at this table with these Gentile Christians. But being concerned about what these other guys would think about him, he gets up and he goes and he sits over there with them. Now, this wasn't just an act of going to sit with these new guys. What Peter getting up and going to sit with these Jewish Christians communicated was that he was shunning them. He was condemning these Gentile believers. This was a non-verbal forcing of the burden of the law back on their shoulders. What he is saying is, suddenly, you're not good enough for me. And if he was in the wizarding world of Harry Potter, he surely would have called them muggles as well. Peter had the wrong behavior in disengaging from these guys. And again, it was condemning. We see that these other Jews are eating with these Gentile Christians. They follow suit with Peter. Peter, being one of these pillar apostles, they think, surely if Peter did it, then we need to do it as well. And Peter was in the wrong, which meant everybody following Peter's lead was then in the wrong. And now you don't just have one big hypocrite, you have a whole table of hypocrites. Even Barnabas, who was friends with Paul, who was a peer of Paul, who went to share the gospel with Paul, followed suit with Peter, saying, surely this is the way we need to handle this. And then Barnabas is found to be a hypocrite as well. Leaders in this church, whether you lead in the home or whether you lead in the workplace or both, you will be held accountable. Watch the way you conduct yourself. Make sure that it is in the spirit, not in the flesh. There are people looking to you. Let's make sure they're following Jesus, not following you as you make a boneheaded mistake. Let's keep ourselves in check. And then verse 14, we see that Paul calls Peter out for not living up to the gospel. Now, when Paul calls Peter out, I see him writing this here in this chapter of Galatians, and basically like when you had a bad day at work, and you come home, and you tell your wife, or you tell your husband, hey, I just told off my boss so good today, and here's what they said to me, and here's what I said back to them, and they couldn't even say anything back. That's what it was like. I told them. That's basically what I feel like Paul's doing here. He basically says to Peter, how can you act one way but expect others to live a different way. We have a different way of saying that today. Maybe you've said this to your kids. 
Do as I say, not as I do. You see, as believers, as parents, as leaders, the example that we set in our actions will always be followed, not the example that we set in our speech. Peter had the right belief in his heart. Peter knew that these guys could eat whatever they wanted to. Peter knew that these guys were not going to make him unclean. He knew this because in Acts chapter 10, this had been revealed to him by God. This food is clean. God has made it clean. These people are okay to fellowship with. Go ahead and fellowship with them. And then Peter corresponds with sin, with hypocrisy. But hypocrisy didn't just take him down. It took others down with him. So, as Peter, as these Jewish Christians were hypocrites, church family, we, we also are hypocrites. And as I say we are hypocrites, I mean that I am just as hypocritical, if not more hypocritical, than anyone in here. So how can we be hypocritical? Where do our wrong behaviors hide our right beliefs? Where do our actions say sin when our hearts say save? Jesus came to preach the good news to the poor and the powerless. Have we forgotten about the poor? Have we forgotten about the disenfranchised? As you drive past the homeless guy on the veteran toll road at 60 and 303, is it just another driving past? Are you trying to take care of somebody? Point them to a direction that they can get help. If Jesus came to set us free from the bondage of sin, do we keep running back to our same old vices, escapism? Do we keep running back to old sin, over and over and over again? If you claim to follow Jesus, but you're living in sexual immorality, that's hypocritical. If you claim to follow Jesus, but you're addicted to porn, guess what? It's hypocritical. If you claim to follow Jesus, but you're addicted to any other substance, guess what? That's hypocritical. That's looking to other things instead of Jesus to fulfill you. What if you're living with someone else and the relationship is more than just roommates? Hypocritical. What if you're entertaining an extramarital relationship? Hypocritical. What if it's just a text message? What if it's just a, a like on Facebook, but mentally there's more taking place? Hypocritical. What if we claim that we love Jesus? But if someone were to look at our lives, they would say, no, they don't love Jesus. They love their phone. I see them. I see them spending time on their phone. I don't see them spending any time with Jesus. We need to realize that hypocrisy needs to be confronted. Just like Paul confronts it in Peter, we need God. God needs to be allowed to identify the hypocrisy in our lives. And when our sin is identified, when we realize what it is, then we offer it up to God. Say, here's what I'm dealing with. Here's where I'm struggling. Here's the thing I'm running to instead of running to you. Here's the thing I'm trying to make fill this void in my life, in my mind, in my heart. And God, I repent of it. I give it to you. But we also need to confront hypocrisy in others. I'm not just saying you go out on the street and you start judging people. Nothing like that. But here, within this context, within a body of believers, probably better so in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, probably better in a home group, sin, especially in hypocrisy, needs to be confronted. We need to remind each other. 
that the gospel is in here, but the gospel that's in here is not overflowing into the actions of your life. We can't let brothers and sisters in Jesus continue to keep on sinning. That's not judgmental. That's love. And we call them back to the truth. When we continue on in silence, silence is judgmental. Being apathetic towards their sin condition, that is judgmental because they will just continue to go on sinning. So let's not let our wrong behavior soil our right beliefs. We've been set free. Let's live like we've been set free. And we see the solution to these two framed pictures. We have legalism, we have hypocrisy, and now Paul sets it straight. Galatians 2, 15 through 21. We see that we are justified by faith. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We have two problems. Legalism, we have hypocrisy. We have one solution, and that one solution is not to live hypocritically. It's not to live legalistically. It's to live by faith. And what is faith? Faith is when the right belief meets the right behavior. We see verse 16, works can't save you. Only faith in Jesus can save you. That's what it means to be justified. Now, justified is this big Christian word that we can kind of throw around here and there. So let's really drill down. What does it mean to be justified? Justified is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. That means if you believe that Jesus can save you from your sins, if you believe Jesus is the Messiah, if you believe that Jesus is Lord of your life, then you have been justified. Only faith in Jesus, only Jesus can justify our sins because of his work in death on the cross, because he rose from the grave victoriously. The law can never justify us. The law can only condemn us. If we take all the good we've ever done, even if you are the best person in the entire world, I'm talking like you are Mother Teresa status person. You take all that good and you mix just a little bit of sin in there. Still sinful. Still condemned by the law. I heard of a student pastor once who made a pan of brownies and he took it to illustrate this point right here to a student ministry one night. It was a Wednesday night. He made the delicious, most delicious fudge brownies that you've ever seen. 
But as he was done making them, he went out into his backyard. He had a dog. You see where this is going. He took just a little bit of dog poop, and he put it in these brownies. And then he took that to church, and he said, Hey, students, I've got some delicious brownies for you here. Now, these are the best brownies I've ever made. Maybe you'd like to try some. But before you do, I want you to know that there's just a little bit of dog poop in here. And I forgot where I put it, but you know what? I I still feel like most of these brownies, they're good enough that we could eat. And maybe one of you will end up with the dog poop, but I feel like most of us will be all right. The law would give us the common sense to say, hey, condemned, not good enough. The law points out the sin in our lives. It doesn't matter if it's just one little sin in the life that has been perfect. The law points that out. And faith in Jesus is what saves us. Justification by the work of Jesus is what saves us. If we're not good, if we're not acceptable under the law, only can we be saved by being justified in Jesus. And that only happens when we put our faith in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 It says, he made the one who did not know sin in order to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It means that when Jesus took the cross, the only perfect, sinless person, fully God, fully man, that would take the cross for us to die for our sin, he was perfect. He was sinless. And God takes his righteousness and he accredits to our accounts. And he takes the sin out of our accounts and he accredits it to Jesus. And Jesus dies on the cross for our sin. So we're justified by faith and faith alone. And being justified by faith, that means that we have to be dead to sin and alive to God. Paul says, if I were to introduce this law, this structure, this system back into my life, it would be a waste. And Jesus would have died For nothing. Paul says in verse 20 that the old me is dead and gone. I have died to sin so that I can be alive to God. So, church family, if we are going to live justified by faith, if we are going to put our faith in Jesus and our acceptance from God is only through Him, then let's live by faith. Let's be dead to our sin, but let's be alive to God. Third and final point this morning is we are saved, and we are saved by faith in Jesus. And we are saved by faith in Jesus alone. So how can we live by faith? How can we have the right behavior and the right belief? We live out of Jesus' performance, not out of our own performance. We stop striving to do this and earn acceptance on our own. We realize that God is passionate about us. He sent his one and only son to die on the cross for the world, not just for the world, but for us. And so for us, let's die to our sin. Let's die to the legalism in our life. Let's die to the hypocrisy in our lives. Let's realize that in Jesus, the old us is dead and gone. That slate is wiped clean. Who you once were is no more. And you are now a new person in Jesus. And in being a new person in Jesus, let's become alive to God. And just like Paul, in becoming alive to God, let us surrender our lives over to the Lord for him to use. Let's realize it's no longer about us. It's all about Jesus. It's all about how Jesus wants to use us, and it's all about what he is doing 
and how we can get on board with that. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We see how desperately we need you this morning. We need you so that we can be justified. So that at the end of our lives, when we stand before God and we are judged, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees your righteousness. Because you took our sin from us and you died on the cross for that sin. And we thank you for that this morning, Lord. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to die to our legalistic ways of trying to earn favor from you, God. Help us to die to our hypocritical ways and where we have the gospel in our hearts, but our life does not look like we even know your name. It doesn't look like we've ever had a single encounter with you. Help us to die to our sin. Help us to look to you for justification and acceptance through God and nothing else. And help us to become alive to you. Jesus, I submit my life to you right now. Whatever you want to do in my life, do it. My desires, the things I once wanted to see done, I lay those down at your throne. And I say, this life is yours. May we be a church that follows you, Jesus, no matter what. No matter what we want out of life, we prioritize you and your kingdom and being your church, first and foremost. Would you not only justify us, Jesus, would you repurpose us? Would you continue to use us? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.